بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على سيدنا ومولانا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا من فضلك علما وتعليما إنك على كل شيء قدير وبعد الحمد لله we have in module 11 we have tonight's lesson and we have a lesson next week and then two more after that so we have four more lessons and then we're finished alhamdulillah with the fardain program and as we get to the end we'll explain how we can do a review as well as administering a written test and, and an oral test now we're a little bit uh we're a little bit off schedule simply because in the last two classes, we spoke at length about the topic and went over the time and ran over into the next class, and the same thing happened two weeks in a row. So what was going to be just a portion of last week's class, I've made into a full class tonight, and I expanded it a little bit. But if we're running out of time, the first half is really the most important part. So in the previous two classes, we were talking about the things, the beliefs, the statements, and the actions that would cause a person to leave the deen of al-Islam, the causes of ridda, apostasy. So we talked about a lot of different examples. We, oft, we also spoke about some guidelines concerning this and the conditions and the impediments to issuing a ruling on someone who falls into some of those things. So tonight's class is somewhat related to that, but it's broader also. And that is the topic of ibadah and shirk, which is to associate partners with Allah Ta'ala. We want to talk about ibadah. What is ibadah? What is the definition of ibadah? How do we distinguish between what is ibadah and what is shirk? Or what is ibadah uh, to Allah Ta'ala and what resembles ibadah but isn't ibadah? So this is a very important topic. And it relates to the, the past two classes we've been talking about regarding the things that would expel one from Islam. So this is very basic. The, a lot of this is very basic and what makes this fardain is to understand the basics and also be clear of definitions so that we're not going into any excess uh, or making any errors in our understanding. So the foundation, ibadah, ibadah is translated as worship and worshiping Allah Ta'ala is the purpose of existence and it's the foundation of the da'wah of every single prophet and messenger. And there are many verses in the Qur'an that establish that. Uh, perhaps the most famous is the verse in Surah Al-Dhariyat where Allah Ta'ala says, وَمَا خَلَقْتُ الْجِنَّ وَالْإِنسَ إِلَّا لِيَعْبُدُونَ I have not created jinn or mankind except to worship me. And we have other verses such as uh, when Allah Ta'ala says that He did not send any messenger before you, meaning the Prophet 
except that we inspired him that there is no God except me, so worship me. Fa'budun. So that's the universal message of all the prophets. Um, Allah Ta'ala affirms this elsewhere when he says, وَلَقَدْ بَعَثْنَا فِي كُلِّ أُمَّةٍ رَسُولًا اللَّهَ We have sent to every ummah, every nation, a messenger proclaiming, worship Allah and shun taghut. If taghut is false gods, the taghut in Arabic means كُلُّ مَا عُبِدَ مِن دُونِ اللَّهِ Everything that is worshipped besides Allah or any living thing that is worshipped besides Allah and, and who is pleased with that, right? Not anything and everything that is worshipped besides Allah is necessarily a taghut because Prophet Isa salam is worshipped, but we wouldn't say he's a taghut. Um, so these verses establish that the universal da'wah of all of the prophets and messengers is uh, ikhlas, sincerity, in worshipping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. وَمَا أُمِرُوا إِلَّا لِيَعْبُدُوا اللَّهَ مُخْلِصِينَ لَهُ الدِّينَ حُنَفَاءَ They have only been commanded to worship Allah alone sincerely for Him in their deen. That is the, that's the core of the message of Islam. And just as the greatest thing a person can do is ibadah, worship of Allah, the worst thing a person can do is shirk billah, to worship other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And just as there are dozens and dozens of verses in the Qur'an about tawheed, there are dozens and dozens of verses in the Qur'an about shirk. The entire Qur'an is a story about tawheed and shirk among nations and peoples and calling humanity back to Allah and calling them away from worshipping other than Allah. So we have verses such as do not set up andad equals or rivals with Allah in worship wa antum ta'lamun while you know that he has the right to be worshiped alone. Allah Ta'ala says that they set up rivals to Allah and mislead from his path. Say enjoy your brief life but certainly your destination is the fire. And perhaps what is the most important verse in the Qur'an about shirk, worshipping other than Allah Ta'ala, is the verse in Surah An-Nisa, where Allah Ta'ala says, إِنَّ اللَّهَ لَا يَغْفِرُ أَن يُشْرَكَ بِهِ وَيَغْفِرُ مَا دُونَ ذَلِكَ لِمَنْ Indeed, verily Allah does not forgive association with Him. أَن يُشْرَكَ بِهِ Right, this, there's a subtlety here in the Arabic. Because أَن يُشْرَكَ بِهِ Grammatically, if you look at the I'rab of this verse أَن يُشْرَكَ بِهِ This is تأويل المصدر So أَن يُشْرَكَ That's مَبْنِي لِلْمَجْهُولِ So it's إِشْرَاكًا إِنَّ اللَّهَ لَا يَغْفِرُ إِشْرَاكًا بِهِ And هذا هو معنى الآية That's the meaning of the verse And we say that النكرة uh, uh, so you have a, a, a indefinite noun that is put in the context of a negation. Uh, it indicates generality, just absolute generality. So Allah Ta'ala does not forgive that partners are set up with Him in worship. But He forgives other than that for, to whomever He wills. 
What this means is that if a person is worshipping other than Allah Ta'ala, worshipping a statue or a person or anything, that sin is unforgivable. If they die without having repented by leaving shirk and embracing tawheed. Meaning if they die, if they leave this dunya committing shirk, major shirk, as an idol worshipper or whatever, they go into the hereafter with a sin that will not be forgiven. Other sins can be forgiven. Even grievous sins can be forgiven. Shirk is not forgiven. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions in this verse that that is the one unforgivable sin. And what it means is unforgivable in the hereafter. It's forgivable in this life. And how is it forgivable in this life? By tawbah. And what is tawbah for shirk? It's becoming Muslim. That's, that's what it is. Right? So the tawbah for shirk is the shahada, embracing Islam. So we know Allah Ta'ala is, as our creator, the only one who deserves worship. And that worshipping other than him is the greatest sin a person can do. And it's not forgiven. A person dies on it. What is Fardain about all of this? To safeguard our own iman, our own tawheed, we need to know what ibadah is and we need to know what shirk is. And we also need to know what they are not. We need to know what ibadah is and what it is not so that we don't accuse other people of shirk out of our own ignorance due to an incorrect understanding of ibadah. I'll give you a really good example. Is, uh, is making ruku' an act of ibadah? Right? Allahu Akbar, you go into ruku', right? Ibadah. Okay. There was a, a sheikh from one country, he was visiting uh, the UK. A friend of mine told me this story a long time ago. And uh, this sheikh was visiting the UK and he was leaving the masjid and someone greeted him. You know, this is a, a very pious sheikh, he's very well respected. And so this young man, the student, uh, greets the sheikh and then he goes and he kisses his hand like this. And someone observes this and he says, Anta mushrik, you have fallen into shirk because you have made ruku'ah to the hand of that sheikh kissing it. You are now mushrik. So the sheikh said, do you kiss your daughter when you get home or your son when you get home from, from work? You, do you, you have to bend down to kiss your young child, right? Does that mean you're worshipping your child? When you bend down to tie your shoes, are you making ruku' to your shoes? Just because a person may lower their head a little bit to kiss someone's hand or a child's head or to tie their shoes doesn't mean they're making ruku', right? So it's just an ignorance of what tawheed and shirk really are, what constitutes shirk that causes people to fall in this kind of extremism. So that's another benefit of knowing tawheed and shirk, what they are and what they are not. So that we have clarity in understanding the kind of things that happen in the Muslim world. Things happen in the Muslim countries that are totally haram, are totally bid'ah, right? And they can be wrong, yet they're not shirk. You understand? So there's two discussions going on. The discussion about whether that thing is halal or haram. Is it, 
is it okay to do, right? Certain practices people do. Or, and then the other discussion is, is it shirk or not? You know, something can be uh, wrong, blameworthy, and superstitious, and folk religion-y, but it doesn't mean that it's shirk and that that person is a mushrik. And by knowing the difference, we save ourselves from making unjust takfir or judgments against the ummah for things that they do that may in fact be problematic or may not be problematic. So, I want to give you a hadith that illustrates this. There's a hadith recorded by Ibn Hibban and he relates that the Prophet ﷺ said, Verily, I fear about a man from among you who will read the Qur'an so much that his face will become enlightened and he will come to personify Islam and he will just look like the model Muslim. And this will continue until Allah desires otherwise. Meaning they look like a really good Muslim, they're reciting the Qur'an, you know, he's a very religious person. Then these things will be taken away from him. He will disregard them by putting righteousness behind his back and he will attack his neighbor with the sword, accusing him of shirk. Accusing him of shirk, associating partners with Allah. The Prophet was asked, which of the two will be deserving of such an accusation? The attacker or the attacked? He replied, the attacker. So this is telling us that a person can reach a state where they think they're so religious, but they become deluded. And in that delusion, Allah leaves them to their own devices, and they end up accusing other Muslims of shirk. This is a very horrible crime. And there's a lot of bloodshed that has occurred within the ummah because of this. We were just mentioning one last week. The, the same mentality is what caused that event in Pakistan. So let's talk about ibadah and what it actually means. And this, I'm going to ask, I'm going to give a little back and forth here. I'm going to ask you guys, I'm going to challenge you a little bit. Um, when you go to the books of fiqh, uh, the books of aqidah, uh, even the books of tafsir, when they talk about the word ibadah, they give a variety of definitions. And you find there's two really, two or three really common definitions used in the books. One of them is number one here on the slide. Every act by which one obeys Allah and draws near to Him. That's ibadah. So every act by which you, you obey Allah. So when you, you, know, you pray salah, you're obeying Allah. That's ibadah. When you fast, you're obeying Allah. Obedience here can refer to obligations as well as recommendations. That's ta'a. Another definition, which is a really popular one, is everything, ibadah is everything Allah loves and is pleased with from statements and actions inwardly and outwardly. And the Arabic of this, for clarity's sake, is Al-ibadah ismun jami'un li kulli ma yuhibbuhu Allah wa yarda min al-aqwari wal-af'al al-zahira wal-batina. This is a very popular definition. And lastly, you have a very simple definition that's really linguistic. And they say that ibadah is ghayatu tadhalluli wal-khudur. It's the epitome of humility 
and submission. Now, these definitions are all correct. They're all true. However, we are not trying to define what is, what is the ibadah of Allah mean? What is the definition of ibadatullahi? What we're trying to define is ibadah in such a way that we can clearly distinguish between what is ibadah and what resembles ibadah. And this, uh, this will make sense when we look at some examples. So let's take uh, the first definition. Every act by which one obeys Allah and draws near to Him. Uh, do you draw near to Allah Ta'ala by sacrificing a qurbani? Yes. You're obeying Allah Ta'ala by sacrificing this qurbani. So if you sacrifice an animal, and you say, Bismillah, Wallahu Akbar, right? you're, you're doing an act of ibadah. If you, let's say you have some very important guests coming over, and you go into your backyard and you, you, you slaughter a sheep to honor the guest because they're really important and you don't want to offend them. You've done something which is an act by which one obeys Allah. But you're doing it for the guest and to honor the guest. Have you worshipped the guest? No, you haven't. Right? So if you look at these definitions, there's many actions that Allah Ta'ala loves and is pleased with, such as feeding hungry people, removing trash from the road. But if they are done for other than Allah Ta'ala, they are not necessarily shirk. The Prophet ﷺ says that the lowest branch of iman is imatatul adha an tariq to remove something harmful from the path. If I remove something harmful from the path, which is a branch of iman, but I, I'm not doing it for the sake of Allah. I'm just doing it because it's a nuisance. I'm not, I'm not bringing a niyyah into the act. I'm not even thinking about ibad. I'm just moving it. That act is pleasing to Allah in its essence. But I haven't worshipped other than Allah when I do it, say, to help my neighbor without even thinking about having a niyyah of ibadah. I'm just doing it. It's not shirk if you, uh, you're not worshipping other, other than Allah Ta'ala if you do it without the niyyah. If you feed your neighbor, right? And Allah loves us feeding people. If you feed your neighbor and the intention is not to draw near to Allah, but to draw near to your neighbor, you want them to like you, right? You haven't worshipped your neighbor. You see the issue here? So the definition is correct if it is the definition of Ibadah of Allah, but it's not a, a, an accurate definition if we're defining ibadah in a way to distinguish it from other things that may resemble ibadah. And we'll get to that. Another example if an idol worshiper makes sajda to an idol, we can all say that that person is worshiping the idol. It's very clear. But if the idol worshipper feeds someone to make his neighbor happy, we don't say that he is worshipped other than Allah Ta'ala. So there's a very clear mental distinction between the mushrik prostrating to an idol and the mushrik feeding someone. Even though prostration, sajda, is ibadah, and feeding people is ibadah, or it's an act that Allah loves. So we need clarity 
when we define the term ibadah and what is not, and what resembles ibadah but is not. There are certain actions that the sharia informs us that Allah Ta'ala loves and is pleased with. Yet they can be done for other than Allah Ta'ala and it's not shirk. A good example is sajda. Where in the Quran do we find people making sajda to others? In Surah Yusuf. Surah Yusuf, we, we have very clearly the example of the brothers of Yusuf, السلام, his family, making sajda. Were they worshipping Yusuf? السلام? Of course not. They were people of Tawheed. That sajda was a sajda of tahiyya and ta'zim, right? It's a sajda of greeting. It's a sajda of honor and respect. It's not a sajda of worship. We also know in the Quran that Allah Ta'ala told the angels to prostrate to whom? Adam alayhi salam. So they prostrated. Is Allah Ta'ala commanding shirk? A'udhu billah. Because that is not a prostration of ibadah, it is a prostration of ta'zim, of honor and respect. So there are certain things that Allah loves and is pleased with, but the actions themselves are not ibadah when done for other than Allah, uh, unless there's a particular niyyah involved. And we're going to explain that niyyah in the definition of ibadah. So these definitions I've given you, they're, they're accurate definitions. But they don't give us the specific definition or a labit for what is ibadah and what resembles ibadah, right? So sajda is an act that can be ibadah, but when it's done in the time of Yusuf السلام, as a greeting, it's not ibadah, but it resembles ibadah for us. So. What is missing in their sajda that doesn't make it ibadah? There's something missing. Or the intention. So the question now is what exactly is that intention? What exactly is intended? And that is where we come to the the proper definition of ibadah. This this ta'arif. That definition that enables us to distinguish between what is actually ibadah and what resembles ibadah. Okay? Before that, though, I want to give you one other example, and that is love. We mentioned in the purification of the heart aspect of the fardain that love is an action of the heart, it is an act of worship. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Uh, commands us to have love. And he forbids people from uh, loving others like the love of Allah. Among mankind are people who take partners with Allah. They love them like the love of Allah. But those who believe are more intense in their love for Allah. So, Allah is pleased with our love for Him. So mahabba is or can be an act of ibadah. So how do you distinguish between mahabba that is ibadah and mahabba that is not ibadah? What is the dabit? What is the guideline that enables us to distinguish between the two? Right? Because if you look at 
just linguistically, we say that ibadah is the epitome of submissiveness and, and humility. Sometimes a person in love can act very submissively to the one they love, right? You can have a person who is so head and over heels in love with their husband or wife that they're very submissive and they're, they're very humble, but we wouldn't say that they're worshiping their husband or wife. There are people who they're so in love with their mahboob that if their mahboob was to dump them or divorce them, they would be utterly broken and even go crazy. Would we say that, oh, your love for them is so intense? I mean, you went crazy after all. So that means your love was so intense that you were actually worshiping them. So you better not love your wife too much because you might worship her. Or you better not love your husband too much because you might worship him. There has to be something that enables us to have clarity and distinguish between what is ibadah and what resembles ibadah. And it solves so many problems. And that brings us to the proper detailed definition. The comprehensive definition is right here. It is التذلل الكامل المبني على اعتقاد الربوبية which means complete submission based on belief that the object of worship has the qualities of rububiyyah, lordship. This is the definition. This is the definition that enables you to distinguish between the sajda that is ibadah and the sajda that is not. So if I go back to the question of Yusuf and his brothers, and I ask you, how do you know they weren't worshipping him? They didn't believe, they didn't believe that Yusuf السلام, had the qualities of rububiyyah. What are the qualities of rububiyyah? Creation, control, absolute knowledge without limits, control of the universe, right? All of these qualities, uh, the, the uh, independence, and ability to cause harm and benefit. You know, all of these qualities are qualities of rububiyyah. If a person were to make ruku'ur or sujood to other than Allah and believe that the thing they're prostrating to has those qualities, then yes, that would be worship. But without that, it could be a prostration of greeting, which is haram for us, by the way. It's not allowed for us as Muslims, it's abrogated, meaning it was allowed in the previous shara'ir, the previous laws, but in the sharia of the Prophet ﷺ, it's forbidden. But it doesn't mean that a person becomes a mushrik if they do it, as long as they don't have that kind of belief in their heart. Now, how would you know they have that belief? As if they expressed it. Otherwise, on the surface, you, you wouldn't necessarily know. So... Just to, let's unpack this a little bit. Uh, in Arabic, the word ibadah, it has that meaning of tadallul, which is uh, extreme submissiveness and, and even humi extreme humility. And when you look at the word ibadah in the Arabic dictionaries, the ma'ajim, they all give the meaning of tadallul and khudur terms that indicate humility and extreme submissiveness. But if you look at the meaning of submissiveness and humility, 
you'll see that, that those two terms can't be the, the legal shar'i definition of ibadah. Because a person can be very submissive to their mother or father. Allah Ta'ala tells us to be submissively humble to our parents. So you can have tadhallul towards your mother or father. You could have some measure of khudur towards your parents. Doesn't mean you're worshipping them. There has to be something else there. So if tadhallul and khudur, these terms, uh, if it meant that any expression of them constituted worship, it would mean that we're worshipping our parents when we're submissive to them. And that would also mean that Allah is commanding us to do that, which is impossible that Allah Ta'ala should command to something that is shirk. So that should be clear. So this definition that we're giving for ibadah is different from the previous ones. The previous ones, and we gave three, the previous ones are sound definitions, but we said that they are definitions of ibadatullahi ta'ala. Right? It is looking at the nature of the acts of ibadah that are towards Allah Ta'ala. It's not defining ibadah uh, as such, as a term that enables you to understand what it is and what is not ibadah. Jami' mani'. So the definition that we gave uh, is composed of two parts. At-tadhallul al-kamil, complete submission, that's number one. And number two, al-mabni ala i'tiqad al-rububiyyah based on one's belief that the object of that epitome of submission, that tadallul, has the qualities of rububiya, right? So the linguistic meaning is not enough. A child can kiss his father's feet, that is tadallul, but it's not worship. The brothers of Yusuf made sajda to him, that's tadallul, but it's not ibadah. The angels made sajda to Adam salam. That is tadallul, but it's not ibadah. Because in all three of these scenarios, there's one key thing missing. And that is belief that the object of sajda has the qualities of lordship. Right? That is the most important part of this definition. So this al-mabni ala i'tiqad is what enables us to distinguish between what is ibadah and what is shirk is very important. So, this is kind of belaboring the point. I mean, this is just repeating the same points. We say that sajda is ibadah when it's accompanied by belief in the rububiyyah of the one to whom a person prostrates. So, when a Muslim is making sajda to Allah in salat, of course it is with the belief that Allah Ta'ala has the qualities of rububiyyah and that's what makes it ibadah. When the brothers of Yusuf make sajda to Yusuf السلام, it was a greeting and they don't have the belief that he has the qualities of rububiyyah therefore it's not ibadah. And when the angels make sajda to Adam it's a show of respect and they don't believe that he has the qualities of rububiyyah therefore it's not worship. So this is the clear distinction. You go to the example of love. Love can be accompanied with tadallul and khudur, submissiveness and humility. 
any love that has tadallul and khudur and also a belief that the beloved has the qualities of rububiyyah, then that would be ibadah, of course. And a person, when a person loves Allah Ta'ala, it's in that state. Because they believe he has these qualities of rububiyyah. But if you love someone else, you know, your husband or your wife, uh, to the point where it drives you mad, you're not a mushrik unless you believe that your husband or wife has the qualities of rububiyyah. So it's very clear. No matter how intensely you love your husband or wife, you're not going to worship your husband or wife. Right? And this seems very simple, but subhanAllah, you know, believe it or not, there are actually university dissertations on Tawheed and Shirk where the author is confused about this point and says some people, they're so madly in love with their spouses that they worship them. They're actually become mushrik because they would listen to their spouse in doing something haram because they love them so much. Therefore, they worship them. That's the level of intellect among some, some people. That uh, just listening to your husband or wife because you love them so much, even if they tell you to do something wrong, makes you a mushrik outside of the deen. That's the level of some people. So this is the important qaid. Uh, this al-mabni ala i'tiqad So the issue is that for worship to be worshipped, there has to be the niyyah. Right? And that's what I, one of you said earlier. You have to have niyyah to ta'abud. Right? The, the intention that you're worshipping in order for it to be worshipped. So if you go back to that, the, the example of sajda, we say that the act of sajda by itself might be ibadah, or it might not be ibadah. What determines if it's ibadah or not? It's the intention of the person doing it. If the intention of the person making sajda, they're intending ibadah, you know, because they believe that thing has the qualities of rububiyyah, then they have worshipped it. If they don't have that intention, and they don't believe that thing has the qualities of rububiyyah, then they haven't worshipped it. So that means that if the action, you know, if you just see someone making sajda to someone, you can't automatically say they're a mushrik because this happened to Mu'adh ibn Jabal radiallahu anhu. Mu'adh ibn Jabal radiallahu anhu spent time with some of the Christians. And he noticed that the Byzantines would do this kind of sajda to their rulers. And he said to himself, you know, this is what they're doing with their rulers to respect them. And the Messenger of Allah وسلم, is far worthier of respect than these people. So when he gets back to Medina, out of, a, out of respect, he makes sajda. Out of respect to the Prophet. And he was not told, uh, you're a mushrik, you're a kafir, we take your shahada. Because his, well, his intention was not ibadah, the intention was respect. He was told that it's forbidden. He was told that it's forbidden. He was not told that he committed shirk, because he didn't. He didn't have the intention of ibadah to begin with. So that action looks the same in both cases, but what makes it different is the niyyah of the person making the sajda.
And the same thing goes for the angels, the same thing goes for the brothers of Yusuf. So an action might on its appearance uh, be ibadah or not ibadah, it all depends on the intention. If you refuse to acknowledge the, the importance of niyyah, then what does it mean? It means that anybody you see making sajda to anything or doing anything that looks like it could be ibadah, they're automatically doing ibadah. And if it's for other than Allah, they're automatically mushrik. And there's no real excuse for ignorance in matters of major shirk. So it becomes a huge problem. And then it gets stretched further, you know. Kissing a person's hand is a rukur, according to some people. So it becomes extreme. So the definition helps us clarify what uh, is ibadah and what resembles ibadah but is not ibadah. That's, that was actually what I was going to cover last week. Uh, the rest of the slides are not so essential. But these slides are a deeper elaboration on the belief of the pagans of Arabia and in general the mushrikun in all societies showing that their shirk is a shirk of believing that Allah Ta'ala the Creator does not have certain qualities of rububiyyah and that their idols do. And believing, because they believe their idols, whether they're stone idols or wood or celestial beings like stars, because they believe those things had those qualities of rububiyyah, they worshipped them. And this is a lot of detail here. So I just want to be mindful of the time. So before I go through this, if I even do it, are there any questions before we move forward? Because this is a nice stopping point. Mm, no questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you, there's, I mean, the hadith is very clear. Uh, there's no obedience to the creation when it's in disobedience to the creator. So there is no obedience in that case. So, in the point of Tawheed and Shirk, what I was saying is that if the wife so loved her husband that he told her to do something haram, and out of her love she did it, obeying him, that's haram, that's sinful. But that is not her worshipping him. You see? Uh, there are some people who believe that is Shirk. And there's, a, there's an actual university dissertation that was published uh, all about shirk al-mahabba, you know, the forms of shirk in love. And this was an example. It's complete jahl, complete ignorance. And the ignorance stems from a person not knowing what is ibadah and, or the difference between ibadah and what resembles ibadah. 
but is not ibadah. Because they don't have that guideline, that dhabit, they are very confused. And yeah, so that's the issue. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if they assume, if they believe that the idols have those kinds of qualities, they're giving those qualities to the wrong thing. You know, that's essentially what shirk is. You know, it is uh, worshipping a person or a statue, an embodiment of a person, uh, and believing that that being has certain qualities that we call the qualities of rububiyya, Allah's lordship. Being the Rabb means all-seeing and all-hearing and nurturing in control of the risk of life and death, uh, of, of complete control, right? You know, the Arabs of Jahiliyyah, they used to believe that if they talked in low tones that Allah couldn't hear them. That's what they used to believe. That's the complete violation of rububiyyah, right? Meanwhile, they believe that their idols could protect them, give life and death. So they're believing that the idols have these qualities of rububiyyah. So you see it very clearly in the, the shirk of, of jahiliyyah among the Arabs. And of course, this exists with every other nation that uh, is involved in idol worship. Yeah. Yeah, wasita. Yeah, I mean that's that's a long topic, isn't it? Uh, if a person ascribes an action that is the act of God, but they ascribe it to a secondary cause, then that's not necessarily shirk, right? I'll give you an example. Um, who creates? the quenching of thirst when one drinks water. Allah Ta'ala. So if you as a Muslim, you're really thirsty one day, and you pick up a glass of water and you drink it, you say, ah, the water quenched my thirst. You have ascribed the quenching of the thirst to the water and not to the creator of the quenching. Does that mean you're now a mushrik? No. Because we interpret the words of people based on who they are, right? We say certain things that are shorthand. So the fact that you are a Muslim, that for me is the biggest qarina, the biggest circumstantial proof that you would never intend to believe, to say that, the water has independent power of creating quenching. I couldn't believe that because you're a Muslim. No Muslim would believe that anything other than Allah has that independent power to create things. But when you say the water quenched my thirst, it's majaz aqli, it's a rational metaphor. It's understood that you're, you're ascribing the act to the wasita, to the sabab, to the means, 
because it was the immediate cause, right? It was the means, but the actual creator of the quenching is Allah Ta'ala, right? And I think we pointed this out in a few classes ago. Maybe it was here, maybe it was somewhere else. In the Quran, we have verses where Allah Ta'ala affirms that it is the angel of death that takes the souls. Other verses say it is Allah who takes the souls. So which one is it? In the big picture, in the ultimate sense, Allah Ta'ala يَتَوَفَّ anfus حِينَ مَوْتِهَا Allah is the one who takes the souls at the time of death. So when he says it's the, the angel of death takes the souls, what does that mean? It is ascribing the act to the sabab, to the, to the cause. Even though the fa'il, al-fa'il, al-haqiqi, who Allah? Allah is the one who does it. So we have to be mindful of this when Muslims speak. A, a Muslim may say the wrong thing. They may word it in such a way that sounds kind of bad. And because they're not educated, they don't know what, how to, to say things with adab and be mindful of these things. But you just have to guide them, right? Um, that's, a, that's a general principle, right? Whenever a Muslim does or says something, we should interpret it through the lenses of, uh, or the qarina of their own Islam. The fact that they're Muslim means that, well, they wouldn't intend the bad meaning. They would intend the correct meaning using this kind of shorthand. Yeah. Okay, any other questions? Okay, we'll go through some of these slides rather quickly. I don't want to bombard you. You have the slides, you can read through them. They're just really brief points. So we mentioned that the idol worshippers in the time of the Prophet ﷺ, they believed that their idols had qualities of rububiyyah. And they even denied Allah having some of these qualities of rububiyyah. And... I just, want to count, I just want to compare that to some of the incorrect understandings that people have. Some of these extremist movements that have emerged, they have claimed that the mushrikun of Quraysh, they actually affirmed rububiyyah according to them. They said, no, the da'wah wasn't to them believing in Allah and His Lordship. They already believed it. They were already fine in that regard. Their problem is that they worshipped other than Allah. That's it. They believe that the past nations did not ascribe independent benefit and harm to the idols or any of the qualities of rububiyyah. They just took them as intermediaries to get close to Allah. And the prophets did not dispute with their people about the rububiyyah at all. They only disputed about ibadah. This is the claim of some extremist groups. But the Qur'an refutes these arguments in, in a very clear way. We see, to reply to the first claim, the Qur'an very clearly explains that the idol worshippers of Quraysh submitted to their idols with the belief that they were gods and with some of the unique qualities of Rububiyyah. And the Qur'an also explains that the idol worshippers of Quraysh had false and incomplete beliefs regarding Allah's Rububiyyah. So, I'll give you an, give you an example. Or many examples. There are many ayat where Allah Ta'ala shows that the mushrikun of Jahiliyyah 
of Quraysh submitted to their idols with the belief that they were gods with unique qualities of rububiyyah. Quraysh believed that the power of the idols would keep them out of reach of Allah's powers. Right? They had this very crude belief that by appealing to the idols, it would ward off Allah from getting them. And that Allah had to please these other idols as intermediaries. That you know, in a, in a tribal society, you have the tribal chief. And he has ultimate power, but he really can't act without the permission or without the input of the other leaders, the other clan leaders. So if the other clan leaders were to intercede with the tribal chief, he, he really has to accept their intercession. He doesn't really have a choice. He has to. And so they, they seem to have uh, taken that belief and put it in their belief regarding the idols and regarding Allah, believing that the idols have this independent power, that Allah has to listen to them, and they would therefore worship them and sacrifice to them and pray to them, believing that uh, they had this kind of power. Right? When you look in the previous nations, with the story of Fir'aun, right, you see that his denial was not a denial just of Allah's right to be worshipped, but it was also a denial of Allah's rububiyyah. وَمَا رَبُّ الْعَالَمِينَ he's, he's not even saying, uh, you know, why should we only worship him? He's denying Rabbul Alameen altogether. So it's a denial of rububiyyah. The idol worshippers of Quraysh fought the Prophet ﷺ over his preaching of rububiyyah. They called, they ascribed daughters to Allah Ta'ala. Allah Ta'ala mentions in the Qur'an that they would insult Allah Ta'ala. How do you believe perfectly in rububiyyah? Yet you insult Allah. How do you believe perfectly in rububiyyah? As some people claim, yet they believe that if they whisper, then Allah can't hear them. How can they believe perfectly in rububiyyah, and yet they believe that other things besides Allah can can harm and benefit independently of Allah Ta'ala. Likewise, if you look in the tafsir of Surah Ikhlas, you see that they wanted to compromise with the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And they wanted to have one day for the idols and one day for Allah in the same way, right? We have so many examples of their beliefs that were clear violations of rububiyyah. They denied Allah's perfections. So whatever rububiyyah they affirmed, such as existence, it was incomplete. It's missing aspects. And they deny that Allah has encompassing knowledge and hearing and sight. They deny that Allah has the power of resurrection after death. Right? They only be they believe that after you die, that's it. There's nothing more. So there's so many beliefs of Quraysh that violated rububiyyah. They asked the Prophet ﷺ for the nasab of Allah, the lineage of Allah. How does that square with belief in rububiyyah? The Quraysh and other idol worshippers, they worshipped with the belief that the idols would give them victory and provision, and that proves that they believed these things had independent power to harm and benefit besides Allah Ta'ala. Those are all violations of rububiyyah. So this idea that they, oh, they were perfect believers in the rububiyyah, they just 
worshipped other than Allah. It's a very uh, shallow and overly simplistic way of understanding that is contradictory to the Qur'an itself. So, without going too far into all of these slides, we conclude by saying that the mushrikun of Jahiliyyah affirmed Allah's rububiyyah in some aspects, but negated it in other aspects. And we're not like the Khawarij and these extremist groups who believe that they were just perfect believers in rububiyyah, they just had problems in ibadah. We also uh, reject the belief of those who say that the past nations from the Quraysh and those before them did not ascribe independent benefit and harm to the idols and simply took them as intermediaries. It was a lot more than that. And we don't believe that the prophets only disputed with their people about ibadah. It was also about Allah's ububiyyah and his attributes. So the correct understanding of tawheed al-ibadah and tawheed al-rububiyyah and all these things is they're, is they're inseparable. So ibadah and rububiyyah are inseparable. If you have uh, problems and misunderstandings in rububiyyah, it's going to affect their ibadah. Like the, their ibadah is going to be corrupted. If their ibadah is corrupted, it, then it's inherent that the rububiyyah belief will be corrupted. The two are mutalaziman. You can't separate them artificially where one is perfectly intact and the other one's messed up. It doesn't work that way because you can't have one without the other. They're inseparable. And one of the big errors of, one of, of these groups that appeared in the last couple hundred years is the artificial separation between ibadah and rububiyyah. The belief that you can be perfectly fine in one but utterly corrupt in the other. We say no. All of the ulama in history say that the two are mutalaziman. They are intertwined. They're inseparable from one another. So a lot of what I presented to you tonight, it doesn't have any immediate bearing in your own life because alhamdulillah you're all Muslims, muwahidun. But it gives hopefully some clarity so you know the difference between what is ibadah and what may resemble ibadah but is not. And if you know that difference, it will protect you from any unjust accusations. It will protect you from having misunderstandings about the nature of tawheed and shirk. And as far as what is fardain, alhamdulillah, you already had it. So this is just a review of some basics. Uh, next week, inshallah, we're going to go over evolution. That'll be a fun class. And is it fardain to know evolution? Not necessarily, you know, in and of itself. But in this day and age, as we are surrounded by all sorts of uh, materialist claims, uh, where science is taken beyond its domain to the, level of, to the level of metaphysical truth, evolution is a big linchpin in that. So we need to discuss it. Uh, what are the various positions that Muslims have towards it? Which of those are acceptable? Which of those are unacceptable? And which ones are not negotiable at all? Right? Those are various positions. We'll talk about that uh, next week, inshallah. The week after will be uh, everything LGBT. After that will be a conclusion where we talk about uh, basics of da'wah and advising people and commanding the good and forbidding the evil and just wrapping everything up insha'Allah ta'ala.
So we have three more sessions and then we have some review. Wallahu Rasulu Alam Sallallahu Sallam Ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alayhi wa sallam.